СССР на основании статьи 127 пункт 7 Конституции СССР вступил в исполнение Welcome to the Evolution of Capitalism, Modern European History in its Global Context podcast. Today I'm here in Budapest with Ilya Yablokov, who is a lecturer and historian at the University of Leeds, and he will publish a book very shortly titled Fortress Russia, Conspiracy Theories in the Post-Soviet World. So Ilya, my first question is, what is a conspiracy theory? Conspiracy theory is the perception of the world and uh, we need to kind of go back to the very term. So there are conspiracy theories and there are conspiracies. Mm -hmm. So conspiracies are part of the daily life basically in politics, in intelligence services, right? Well, even in the office life, right? If, if you want to make a career, you kind of, you, you try to agree with, the, with two or more people, you know, to kind of, to undermine the competitor or your boss, whatever. I mean, so it's this kind of things exist. And that kind of things make conspiracy theories in a way legitimate part of the uh, world. So conspiracy theory in that sense uh, are different from conspiracies. Conspiracies are facts in a way, right? Hundreds, thousands of books are written about that subject starting from the ancient times. Conspiracy theories appeared in the modern era, pretty much in the 17th and 18th centuries. Uh, and it's the perception of the world, the vision of the world, uh, where there is a tiny secret cabal group mm -hmm. of uh, individuals or creatures, right, that want to rule the world. So the question of power is always central to conspiracy theory. Uh, normally, with some exceptions, conspiracy theories are making our life worse. They are not improving life for mm -hmm. the people, right? They always explain why we live worse than we used to be. Uh, and these are very powerful um, ideas that are able to mobilize uh, large groups of people. That's why quite often we see conspiracy theories as part of the populist uh, narratives mm -hmm. across the world. So it's not, conspiracy theories are not just part of the uh, Russian, American, Latin American culture. They are everywhere, in a way. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It's really good that you mentioned the 18th and 19th century because, I mean, obviously I've known you for 10 years and I know that your previous project was on conspiracy theories in 19th century uh, Russia, precisely anti-Semitic um, uh, conspiracy theories. So that would, you know, put the origins of these theories to the, to the 19th century, right? But now you mentioned the 18th century and that's also, of course, the rise of capitalism and sort of the transformation of the world. Can we make this connection that the world is becoming more complex and people are trying to make sense of it? Through Definitely, conspiracy yes, theories? yes. That's, that's the way of making sense of the world. Um, <clears throat> How well, about medieval conspiracy theories? Do you know about there, there, there are. I mean, I don't think I'm, I have enough of training or mm -hmm. enough of background, you know, to discuss medieval conspiracy mm -hmm. theories that much. Mm -hmm. So I'm rather, uh, I started my research, in fact, 10 years ago when we met. Uh, I was doing the research on American conspiracy theories because mm -hmm. uh, kind of the, 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 the research of 
this phenomenon uh, began in the 1950s in the United States, uh, right after the era of McCarthy, right? And from that time in the 1960s, 1950s, scholars began, began, began exploring that thing. How does it work? They were very cautious, so they were kind of, it, it was this research, but at the same time it was a very partisan activity. They were very afraid that conspiracy theories will turn America into a fascist state and they kind of were ruled by the right-wingers. And so when I was doing my research, in a way that was kind of a, a number of factors that um, kind of pushed me towards American conspiracy theories. But it helped me a lot to understand later how conspiracy theories uh, have been working in Russia back in the 19th century too. And how closely conspiracy theories are related to the formation of the kind of new Russian identity in the 19th century. Mm -hmm. right? The idea of greatness, which also existed for, for, for centuries. The modernization of the world, kind of in this small piece of Russian land in a way in the mid-19th century, these are the, all, these are the factors that <coughs> pushed uh, conservative elites in the Russian Empire to produce conspiracy theories, to make sense of the world, to prevent modernization, to prevent the spread of education, to prevent the spread of ter terrorists and radicalists that were trying to kind of to undermine the world. They they saw so it was a real conspiracy then, and not just a conspiracy theory. In what sense? In this, in uh, on the part of you know conservative elites. Again, um, was it secret? Mm -hmm. No, it was uh, when Russian Emperor Alexander the Second started the reforms uh, in the eighteen sixties. Uh, the idea was to kind of you know push Russia towards Europe, kind of to assist modernization of the uh, of the state of society, and to give education to as many people as possible, to liberate the slaves, to give peasants freedom. Uh, another thing is that it was partial; it was very kind of one-sided um, process, because on the other side of the political spectrum there were plenty of uh, intellectuals who saw it as a threat, so they saw uh, radicals and radicals, Russian radicals, who were kind of trying to kill this, who saw the Tsar as a threat to the socialist Russia, to the real kind of ch changes in, in the Russian Empire. Uh, at the same time, there was a very active Polish rebellion. And one of the attempts to assassinate the Tsar uh, was made by the Polish uh, activists. So some of these conservative elites saw um, Poles as the agents of this Western conspiracy. And what is important here is that in an, already in the 19th century, as in many ways as, a, as an after effect of the lost war in 1956, the Crimean War, where Russia kind of was defending itself, defending itself from the United Kingdom, from France, in the war with the Ottoman Empire. So for kind of this alliance against Russia was the best proof for Russian conservatives 
that the West is against Russia. The mm -hmm. West is trying to prevent Russia to become the global power, to acquire this, uh, the lands of the Palestine, to kind of to put the to put the control over the channels, right, of the Bosporus and Dardanelles. So um, they saw it as kind of as the evidence, and hence when the next star, uh, Alexander II, started the kind of Western liberal reforms, well, liberal in, in a certain way, certainly, uh, they perceived it as, you know, as, as a very dangerous sign. And the number of um, journalists that kind of became public speakers, I mean, even Fyodor Dostoevsky was among them, saw the West and a certain trends in the Russian society at that time as the threat to the stability of the regime. They did not want Russia to take the same track as other European countries. And then certainly the wave of anti-Semitic conspiracy theories came. And that was also kind of the one of the signs of modernization for Russia, because the Jews were perceived as the agents of change. But in that sense, Russia was pretty much on the same level and reached this period of popularity of conspiracy theories pretty much with this in the same period as Germany or France or even the United mm -hmm. States. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So how can we make the jump from the Crimean War to 1989 or 1991 um, in the Soviet case? In a sense, I mean, you know, your book concentrates on the post-Soviet period, right? And, and you know, we often hear, like, you know, at least Russian conceptualizations of geopolitics as the West against Russia, which is a very sort of similar idea. And it's also, uh, I mean, you know, the time you're writing about is a, is a time of extreme economic upheaval and, and changes in economic order and the advent of a different form of capitalism, let's put it that way, to um, to Russia and the post-Soviet um, universe, right? Or would you agree with that? What's so different about this capitalism? It's a different than, you know, if we agree that the Soviet Union gradually adopted some form of capitalistic organization from, like, you know, during perestroika mm. or the mid-1980s, mm -hmm. what happened during Boris Yeltsin was structurally different, right? It, well, yeah. certainly they've changed, uh, they've adopted um, radical liberal reforms, just like other reformists made in the Eastern Bloc countries two years before them, more or less. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So what's specific about these conspiracy theories in the post-Soviet world? Um, um, it is very important to uh, have a look at the evolution of conspiracy, anti-Western conspiracy theories, because mm -hmm. my book there are plenty of conspiracy theories, mm -hmm. certainly. But my book focuses on anti-Western conspiracy theories. Mm -hmm. It's certainly one of the first research. There's plenty to, 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 to study still. Um, but I would say that the central and very important element here is the way how the Soviet Union collapsed. Well, it's not the surprise. I mean, it's not the new thing to say that when not even American intelligence services, uh, the potential, you know, opponent of the Soviet Union, um, expected that the Soviet Union is going to collapse that quick, right? So rapidly, uh, and in fact, American leadership, American political leadership, wanted to kind of 
to support Gorbachev to keep the Soviet Union kind of afloat. <coughs> uh, so when it actually happened in December 1991, uh, that Vladimir Putin later described as um, kind of the conversation with the ordinary people in Crimea who said that they were left as a sack of potatoes mm -hmm. in another country. So these sort of ideas uh, were fermenting for a certain period of time uh, amongst various Russian um, intellectuals and certainly among the ordinary population because when Yeltsin proclaimed independence, right, and proclaimed that from 1st of January 1992 it's going to be a different country, right, when Gorbachev was basically left aside. Still there are a lot of questions how the August coup d'etat by the conservatives uh, in 1991, what was that like? What would, Was that a kind of a plan in which Gorbachev was involved, was aware of, and in a way provoked them to do? because it was part of his big game, mm -hmm. or he wasn't aware of it. But then how come the conservatives who controlled the um, intelligence services, the KGB and special services uh, army, how, why they were not capable of capturing Boris Yeltsin, although they had dozens and dozens of opportunities to do that. But he built himself as the leader, right? So there are so many um blank spots around this event and this event is just think about it it's it is central to the new russian national identity that's the birth of the nation right it's it's the event similar to the boston tea party in mm -hmm. a way right it's the it is the moment when the russian new russian nation um gets rid of the communist past of the totalitarian regime shows the willingness to build democratic uh, institutions, have their own leader um, who was elected right by the popular vote. And then at the same time, this is the event that stands in the center of anti-Western conspiracy theories. Because this is when Yeltsin was kind of for a certain period of time considering to stay in the American embassy in case the conservative, the GKCP, the state um, committee on the emergency situation, when in case they would decide to attack the protesters in the center of Moscow, right? And then the fact that Boris Yeltsin called George Bush in December 1991 and said that Mr. President, we I have to tell you that there is no more Soviet Union, right? Uh, well, so all these kind of tiny details, uh, if you look at them, if you perceive them, if you discuss them amidst the economic crisis and the greatest mm -hmm. way of liberalization when millions of people became poor, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Lost jobs, lost careers. Um, were killed as a part of the wave of criminality, right? Um, in a completely restructured new state. So these kind of ideas, you know, they were pretty popular. But at the same time, in the 1990s, uh, the mainstream idea was democratization. And, uh, and a certain part of elite 
at least the mainstream elite, was very much in favor of uh, democratic changes and they were supporting them. At the same time, there was a part of the establishment that was trying to kind of continue, um, well, prevent democratization, act as uh, conservatives. I'm not saying that, for example, the Communist Party was trying to, you know, to return to the Soviet Union. I don't think it was possible by any means. Uh, but uh, they were very much into the belief that the Soviet Union collapsed as a result of the malign plan of the West. Mm -hmm. And that was the reason why uh, in the 1990s, amongst the far-right, mostly nationalist uh, environment, these ideas were getting more and more prominence and they ended up uh, being discussed in the parliament in 1998-1999 as a part of the impeachment against Boris Yeltsin, mm -hmm. the president of Russia. Could, could you tell more about that? Uh, it's quite an interesting, it's a, in a way it's a, it's a turning point in the conspiracy culture of the post-Soviet Russia. So the idea of that the Soviet Union collapsed uh, as a result of conspiracy was put in the center of the impeachment. Mm, they've put forward five accusations. They, I mean, the conservatives, uh, members of the Communist Party, members of various nationalist parties. That at that time, Russia was a pretty free state, so there were many parties in the parliament. It's it's just funny how you uh, put the co the Communist Party in the conservative camp. They were very conservative at that time. Yes, uh, they they were. It was a very chauvinist party, I would say. Uh, at the same time, they kind of they uh, they consisted of both kind of uh, conservative Christians who were carrying the icons. Mm -hmm. Zuganov, who was the leader of the, who is still the leader, it's the same leader <laughs> of the Communist Party. Uh, he was uh, uh, basically saying that uh, a proper communist is a Christian communist. So they were. They were they were doing quite a lot of massive things and the Russian politics were much more interesting than it is now in that sense, right? Uh, Russian politics will always be interesting. Uh, but so the, um, this kind of the alliance of conservatives put forward five accusations against Yeltsin um, and four of them contained the elements of conspiracy theories, anti-Western conspiracy theories. So A, the Soviet Union in 1991 collapsed as a result of conspiracy. That was the first, and, and, and Yeltsin was the agent of the, of, the, of the foreign services, foreign intelligence services. Two, that Gorbachev and Yeltsin um, destroyed the um, military uh, defense kind of potential of the Soviet Union. It's a reference, basically, to the status of superpower that Russia lost as a result of Perestroika. Uh, then, in, in October 1993, um, Yeltsin basically committed a crime against the nation by shooting the protesters in the center of Moscow. And that was part of this Western plan to destroy Russia. And the force, it was just that Russian nation is has undergone the process of genocide. Mm -hmm. So the, the thieves one was quite uh, the, the, the last point. The fifth point was that Yeltsin started the war in Chechnya, which was true, right? Mm -hmm. And this point 
uh, gathered the maximum of votes of the of the of the deputies in the parliament. But the the last one, the um, um, genocide, uh, was a very tricky thing, because when you look at the genocide, at the notion of genocide. It can happen only when a nation is weak, right? So the nation that claims that it went through genocide is supposed to be weak, right? It has to have the enemy which would be stronger than this nation. And then in the case of Russia, it is very hard uh, to... It was very hard, it is still, still very hard to promote that idea. Because the center of um, Russian national identity is the idea that Russians won the Second World War, that Russians ruled mm -hmm. the world, mm -hmm. they were the superpower. So how can you actually commit a crime, commit a genocide on the nation, which is, uh, you know, which is the winner of the greatest global conflict so far, right? And that's why this idea did not gather, but these conservatives were basically throwing for you know everything you know that would work mm -hmm. this idea collected less votes which kind of proves that uh, kind of point that russians did not go through the genocide process mm -hmm. right mm -hmm. uh, but what is important and this is a very important outcome of this um, um, impeachment is that conspiracy theories for the first time hit the floor of the parliament and were voiced by the legitimate elected politicians. They were broadcast by the TV, they were described in the press, they were discussed by intellectuals. So they became in a way a part of the normal political process, which conspiracy theories are. Mm -hmm. It is a part of the normal democratic discussion. Conspiracy theories are not the element of the marginal paranoid mind. They flag up problems in societies. They show inequality, in a way. They show the problems in a certain society that must be addressed to politicians. They, they draw attention of the leadership. In, in theory, right? In, in reality, politicians should not kind of um, ignore these ideas. They need to... They, they, these people have to be... Lead, Hurt, right? So, in that sense, Russian political elite in 1999 uh, made several conclusions. On the one hand, they did not, they freaked out. They got really afraid of, uh, of these populist mm -hmm. conspiracy narratives. And they started to act in the same way. In the 2000s, they employed the same ideas but started using them against the opposition because they, in a way, they realized the potential that these ideas can uh, have when they put together very kind of different groups of people, right? And on the other hand, uh, and this is what I'm kind of thinking of now, um, the fact that conspiracy theories were voiced not only by conservatives, but some liberal politicians also joined that impeachment. Uh, kind of made the authorities to, made the Kremlin kind of a political elite, or leaning towards the Kremlin political elite, to 
basically find a solution and make sure that the pro-Kremlin uh, candidate for the president will win the elections next year. And here we kind of, I'm speculating here, right? I'm, I don't think that kind of the impeachment or rather conspiracy mm -hmm. theories around it were that crucial, but the impeachment demonstrated that various political sources can actually unite and can act together against the Kremlin, against the possible incumbent. Mm -hmm. uh, and so the Kremlin kind of uh, um, made its own call, mm -hmm. and that's why we have Vladimir Putin in the Kremlin for 17 years. Because mm -hmm. Vladimir Putin was the guy who was able to unite very uh, different groups of Russian society together because of his popularity, because of the kind of image that was created around him. So, in a way, it's one of the, one of the secondary outcomes of this impeachment and the role that conspiracy theories played mm -hmm. there, Vladimir Putin. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, do we see any change in conspiracy theories ever since the Yeltsin impeachment up to now? I mean, you know, the Russian economy changed a lot, and I'm not trying to force this conversation towards, you know, capitalism mm -hmm. and the economy. Mm -hmm. But, you know, there was also a period of boom and inequality, at least as compared to the Yeltsin years. Mm -hmm. To some extent, you know, was was declining it in a way that the middle class was earning more money. I mean, the oil prices were booming, um, so there was a there were you know, in an economic sense, glory days, right? Uh, These days were in the two thousands. Yes, the two thousands. I'm talking about the two thousands. But but it's it's very important to say that the structural changes to the Russian economy were made in the nineteen nineties under Yeltsin. <clears throat> Without Yeltsin's reforms, we. Uh, Putin wouldn't be able to 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 um, uh, enjoy the perks of uh, the market economy. Mm -hmm. And still, uh, if you look closer at the at the Russian economy, perhaps liberalization of the economy was one of the few goals that was successfully achieved by the Russian ruling elite. Mm -hmm. And what about the oligarchs, right? Mm, oligarchs are part of the games here. Certainly, those uh, they had lucrative contracts, they had the necessary connections. They are part of the process of transition, certainly. And uh, in a way, uh, if you have oligarchs, it's easier to control them rather than if when you have uh, the market that is based on small uh, entrepreneurs. Right? Mm -hmm. It's much easier to to threaten the oligarch. Mm -hmm. than to, you know, to catch all the small shopkeepers, let's put it that way. Mm -hmm. So in a way, I mean, oligarchs are benefiting from the existence of the Kremlin and the corrupt economy. And on the other hand, the Kremlin uh, knows how to control them, how to put them under control, especially now. It, the, the, this, this, uh, the situation was much different in the 1990s. There were certainly the oligarchs, and it's kind of it's a buzz name, you know, one of the major tags that you that you kind of use when you talk about post-Soviet Russia and the post-Soviet economy. But oligarchs were kind of a necessary evil in many ways. They, mm -hmm. they, they some of them really helped to kind of to modernize the Russian economy, Russian companies such as Mikhail Khodorkovsky and his Yukos company, which was uh, taken as a you know initially as a very um, destroyed and kind of um, absolutely deconstructed bankrupt uh, company and he turned it into a 
uh, one of the best uh, oil company, one of the biggest and well-working companies in the world. It's very, it's symbolic in a way that the Yukosov and the rest of Mikhail Khodorkovsky, as a result of which he spent 10 years in prison from 2003 to 2013, uh, that case and that affair is an important watershed both uh, with regard to the economic development and political development of Russia, but also uh, in the history of uh, post-Soviet conspiracy theories. Khodorkovsky mm -hmm. um, was um, accused by uh, kind of pro-Putin's elite that orchestrated this affair, uh, that he was in uh, agreement with the White House uh, mm -hmm. that when he becomes, when he commits a crime, when he basically um, exercises the coup d'etat, when he wins the elections, when he becomes the prime minister and then president, he will get rid of all the nuclear weapons Russia had. And this would leave the United States the only superpower. Mm -hmm. So it is rumored there is a story that is constantly kind of repeated in various academic and kind of uh, semi-academic research uh, that there was a certain report that was put on the desk of Vladimir Putin in 2003 that claimed uh, the existence of the oligarchs conspiracy against Vladimir Putin. And that was one, it is claimed, various offers claim that 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 was the turning point. Vladimir Putin kind of gave the green light to the special services to arrest Mikhail Khodorkovsky to start a smearing campaign against Yukos and against Khodorkovsky, and that's when he put the first prisoner. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. prisoner. So it's motivated by conspiracies or conspiracy uh, theories. It was, we don't know. It was it was motivated by um, the fear of the Kremlin elites to lose the elections, and that was the key election. Vladimir Putin in 2003, it's not the, Vlad the Vladimir Putin of 2013. Sure. It's a different person. It, he's about to run for the, for the second term, right? He's not a lame duck yet that wants to kind of to uh, start the operation as successor. He's very much, you know, mm -hmm. a, a, sh a shy and a modest politician, right? who still enjoys very high popularity among the among the people. So not everything is very shaky at the moment for, for, for Vladimir Putin. And that's why kind of the idea to threaten the ruling class, again those oligarchs, with the arrest of one person and justified by the fact that he is not only acting against the people of Russia, because he owns the natural resources, he owns he owns the oil, and he wants to sell this oil to the Americans. There was a, and that was actually quite that was that was a real fact that Mikhail Khodorkovsky managed to strike a deal with the American oil companies to sell to them part of the company. So that is the real evidence of conspiracy mm -hmm. for those elites. And so that was justified because part of this campaign was a number of reports by some strange think tank mm -hmm. that kind of disappeared later that basically accused the oligarchs in waging the war against their own people. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So we talked about the Duma and the impeachment of Yeltsin as sort of a forum 
for conspiracy theories, but of course, the mass media is also a forum. And yeah, I mean, just uh, put in a pitch for a new project with Elizabeth Jim Fossil on the transformation of Russian mass media after um, the 1990s. Um, but you know, my question is, to what extent is the mass media crucial in disseminating conspiracy theories? Uh, it seems to me, um, and you know, all of what I know about Russian conspiracy theories comes from you, that, uh, that there are... It's a good source, I, I agree. Okay. <laughs> yeah, and then, you know, eventually I'll ask you about your sources. But anyways, so... You I know... cannot disclose my sources, no matter. <laughs> oh, okay. So it's, <laughs> it's all about it's conspiracy, right? <laughs> uh so but anyways so you were showing um in your in your in your presentation at the ui um all these really powerful images of talk show hosts talking conspiracy and you know so i would just want to push you to talk a little bit about you know the ownership structure of these media outlets that sort of allow um conspiracy theories to sort of run mainstream right I don't think that the ownership structure here is, is crucial. Uh, mm -hmm. Some of the companies are owned by the government. Most of the companies are owned by the private uh, companies which have strong connection to the government too. Uh, but certainly in today's Russian media, there is a huge problem of uh, this conspiratorial populism that is used as the tool to legiti uh, legitimize uh, the policies of the government to explain that whatever happens to Russia now is a result of the um, bad, you know, competitors who do everything to destroy Russia. Uh, but in a way, the, it, my research shows that the reason why Russian media are so keen on conspiracy theories because A, they don't have any limits. They don't have any principles in a way that would uh, not allow them to act uh, more ethically, let's put it that way. I mean, what is conspiracy theory, right? It's an accusation of uh, some bad actions, criminal actions against a certain group, community, nation, whatever. Um, so this accusation in a normal environment has to be supported by the evidence. But how many, how much evidence do we have from all these endless programs on Russian state channels? Not much. They don't bother themselves to, you know, to, um, to prove the reasons mm -hmm. uh, uh, of why they are kind of mm -hmm. starting all these smearing black PR campaigns, right? Uh, conspiracy theorists are, in a way, keen on evidence, but the evidence for them could be anything, and they interpret in the way they want in, a, in, in to in many many ways, right? Mm -hmm. It is their vision, right? We kind of we go back to the first question. This is the perception of the world. Mm -hmm. They can perceive anything as the evidence of the existing conspiracy, right? So for the journalists, uh, in many ways, this is a question of ethics, which they don't possess. And that is a question <laughs> of uh, career in many ways, mm -hmm. because it's all about how well you're going to put together kind of the, a nice report accusing the enemies of the government of kind of, of malign activities. And 
quite often these journalists do have the appraisal of the uh, line managers and bosses. Mm -hmm. You know, look at the guy who's um, uh, the presenter on the main Russian television channel, Dmitry Kisilov. He's the one of the major mouthpieces of anti-Russian conspiracy theories. And my chapter, the last chapter, is based only on the output that he produced during the Ukraine crisis. Mm-hmm. And he was the one who... So he's not only uh, the uh, instigator of these conspiracies, conspiracy theories, but he also a consumer of the of conspiracy mm-hmm. theories. So it is a very... By now, there is a whole... It's going to sound like conspiracy theory, actually. Mm-hmm. But there's a whole industry of production and consumption of conspiracy theories by the media and by the media professionals. Mm-hmm. Public intellectuals mm-hmm. who produce these conspiracy theories, right? Who look great on the television. They are invited to talk shows. They speak what these journalists want them to speak because it kind of resonates with the with the way they, 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 they think news should be covered, right? And so these, these television shows provide the f- necessary floor or stage for conspiracy theories. Um, mm-hmm. And they basically spread the ideas among the population. And for, for the majority of Russian population, uh, television is... Uh, the main channel of uh, receiving information nowadays. Mm-hmm. 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 Okay, so we have to end soon, but because you know you mentioned McCartism yep. in the beginning, of course I have to ask you about the Russia collusion. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, conspiracy, conspiracy theory or theory uh, that's sort of dominating US media. And I don't want to ask you to decide on the matter. It's more about you know the structure of the debate or the nature of the debate in America. To mm-hmm. what extent can you see parallels between American debates on Russian interference in the 2016 mm-hmm. election mm-hmm. and Russian debates on malign Western influence mm-hmm. on Russia's mm-hmm. geopolitical state? Mm-hmm. Uh, to many extent, it's, it, they are very similar. Just a few days ago, Julia Yoffe published an excellent piece in The Atlantic about entitled What Putin Really Wants. And it's a very precise, very, very detailed analysis of the whole Russia affair. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I agree with the conclusion. Um, the American society and American political establishment that was shocked by the victory of Donald Trump uh, try to find the explanation to what happened in accusing Russia. And uh, in a way, they kind of assigned, these guys assigned such serious uh, influence or role to in this affair to the Russian hackers and the Russian special services that they basically forgot how to think objectively in a way. Mm-hmm. That... Um, you know, in the Russia, there's a proverb uh, that applies to the members of the um, um, to intelligence services. You need to ha- keep your hands clean and your mind uh, cold, right? So they lost their cold mind in, way, in many ways. And so they started to accuse Vladimir Putin personally of waging this war. Mm-hmm. However, I mean, maybe the Kremlin actually tried to uh, instigate some, you know, meddling and, and and some dodgy operations. 
But Americans, in many ways, perceived Russia as a necessary force, as a necessary kind of point, focal point of the crisis in which the country found, the society found itself on the eve of election and then straight after that. In the same way as the Russian establishment in the 2000s that was torn apart by various you know, factors and afraid that the similar thing that happened in Ukraine and other post-Soviet states, meaning the democratic revolution, change of the, the quick change of the regime, is going to happen in Russia. So they kind of they also lost the temper in many ways. And they started to, to look for enemies. So in that sense, it's it's these are very similar. Certainly th these processes are very different in their details, but at the same time, this is a reaction or overreaction to the unprecedented and very kind of um, unexpected uh, events that might change the regime. Ilya Yablakov, thank you very much for your time. Thank you so much, Mate.